Good morning, and welcome to First Parish in Lexington. My name is Ben Soule, and I am one of the worship associates here at First Parish. First Parish is a Unitarian Universalist church wherein we hold a diversity of convictions in the spirit of unity and mutual respect. Ours is an open-minded religion in which you are free to search for truth and meaning within a caring and supportive community. If you are a first-time visitor here at First Parish, thank you for coming and joining us for our Sunday worship. If you want to find out more about our congregation, join us for refreshments and conversation following the service in Parish Hall through the doors to my left or to my right. There you can visit the welcoming kiosk, or you may fill out one of the cards in front of you in the pew rack. In your order of service, you will find announcements and a calendar of what's happening this afternoon and for the rest of the coming week. Also, check the online weekly update for other events. We are honored this morning to have Deirdre Giblin with us. Deirdre is the asylum counselor at the Community Legal Services and Counseling in Cambridge. She is here to speak to us this morning, and the second collection will be taken this morning and donated to Legal Services and Counseling Organization. Good morning. Thank you. The famous scientist Louis Pasteur is quoted as saying, One does not ask of one who suffers, what is your country and what is your religion? One merely says, you suffer. That is enough for me. By inviting me here to take a few minutes to talk about our service to refugees and immigrants, your faith community has already shown your intentionality of welcoming those who suffer. As Ben said, my name is Deirdre Giblin. I'm an asylum attorney at the Community Legal Services and Counseling Center. I specialize in refugee, asylum, and humanitarian law. And one of your members invited me here today, Steve Clark, who, in addition to running his own well-regarded immigration practice, has also made time for a volunteer work, which in the legal services is called pro bono, for the good. And he and I met, and I was lucky enough to work at a refugee resettlement agency for almost 10 years in Boston, and we ran a legal clinic. And Steve Clark was one of our uh, very reliable volunteers who would come and give his time to meet one-on-one -on -one with refugees and asylum seekers to give legal advice in a very complicated area of the law. So specialties like that are very important. We met with people from around the world who had fled violence or civil unrest. And the world's attention in the last year, I'm sure almost everyone in this beautiful church, has been drawn to the Syrian refugee crisis. I have a few remarks about that. I see some children here, so I'll probably edit my remarks just a little bit. I'm a mother of three myself. And the Syrian crisis, as many of you know, has taken place in a very biblical spot. So it draws our attention to the words like Damascus and Aleppo, places we read about in the Bible, but now have a very current contact. The world attention has been drawn to it. This is the largest humanitarian crisis we've seen in more than a generation. It has affected not just individuals, but families. Obviously, the media has brought us images that have been very disturbing. A friend of mine asked me, and actually a financial supporter of Classic asked, is it really just the ocean that is keeping us away from this crisis? And I said, sort of, yeah. This crisis is on Europe's doorstep, and we're not seeing it quite as viscerally yet because of that ocean. But people like Steve Clark and myself have actually met with Syrians since 2011 when the Syrian uprising happened. The Arab Spring was more successful in countries like Egypt than it has been in Syria. And the people we have met with for the past four years have been the most prosperous that are able to leave a country. Those are the first people who can flee civil unrest, like the diplomats or the doctors, people who have visas, people who have money, and it leaves the more regular civilians behind until things become such a crisis as we've seen. Many church groups, uh, your national group, for example, and a lot of synagogues have really taken an interest in this crisis because nobody wants to see another genocide. No one wants to see another Holocaust. And this is large groups of people that have been affected by this crisis. Legal services where I work is in Cambridge, and we're lucky enough to be supported by individual donors and by our Bar Association and a grant from the United Nations specifically asking us to work with doctors and lawyers 
collaboratively to work with torture survivors and trauma survivors. And almost anyone who is here in Massachusetts now from Syria, as well as loads of other countries, the Congo, Ethiopia, El Salvador, have all seen violence, and so they carry that with them. And we work collaboratively as lawyers and counselors to try to meet the needs of these individuals. As many of you know, there's been a, an idea that the president has talked about bringing up to 10,000 refugees from the Syrian crisis. Less than 1,000 have been resettled so far over the last three years, but as this moves forward, we probably will see more. And I'm sure your congregation will probably get more involved in different aspects of that resettlement, like English training or counseling or housing or food drives and different things like that. I want to thank everyone in this room today for any generosity you have for our organization. And please know that your presence today, spreading the word about caring about these individuals and any monetary donation you make today is very much an individual contribution that you're making to alleviate the suffering for people who are in this crisis. Thank you. Please take a moment now to turn and greet those around you and to check that your electronic devices have been silenced. <clears throat> <clears throat> come here today aware of the world's most vulnerable peoples and aware of the beauty of this world we have been given. Today we lift up in our worship the wisdom of a cloistered monk, Thomas Merton, and I'll begin with his words. Every moment and every event of every person's life on earth plants something in his or her soul. For just as the wind carries thousands of winged seeds, so each moment brings with it germs of spiritual vitality that come to rest imperceptibly in the minds and wills of humans. Many of these unnumbered seeds perish and are lost 
because we are not prepared to receive them. For such, such seeds as these cannot spring up anywhere else except in the good soil of freedom, spontaneity, and love. We give thanks as we come to this place where we prepare ourselves and search for the seeds. Let us sing together our opening hymn, All Beautiful the March of Days, number 57. As we light our chalice this morning, let us look inward to the light within, within each of us. This is the steady, unflickering flame that we turn to when we need to recenter ourselves or reset our compasses or to make sure that we are true to ourselves and to those around us. Let us take a moment to tend to that flame, to rekindle it if need be, so that it may provide the inner warmth, the inner vision, to carry us forward in the days ahead. Please join in singing the chalice lighting response found in the inside cover of your order of service. Oh, may this chalice ever be a symbol Say our unison affirmation together so that we may hear our voices and the voices of those around us echoing and reinforcing the words of our covenant. Our unison affirmation can be found on the inside cover of your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest for truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with divine. Please be seated.
with me today a small wonder box and I wonder who wants to help me open it lift up right here and see what's inside what is it, it, beads on it. it does look like a string with lots of beads on it all right could you hold the wonder box for me while I tell a story thank you so these are a string of prayer beads and with these beads comes a story. And this story is a little bit true and a little bit new. So Sid was a kid. And it was an unusually warm winter day. And the snow had melted enough that the big boulder, the big stone that was in Sid's backyard, was bare. And it was warmed by the sun. Now this spot was Sid's favorite place to go and sit. So Sid climbed up on top of this rock, sat cross-legged in the sun, and had some time to think. This was Sid's thinking place. Sid thought about Sunday school, the previous Sunday at his Unitarian Universalist church. It was a really fun workshop because one of the church elders, Nan, had come to talk to his class about prayer. And it was a new kind of class. Uh, Nan brought in prayer beads from all different religions from around the world, and they talked about how beads were used for prayer in different places. And the children in this class had a chance to make their own set of prayer beads. And they learned about how different prayers in the world could be divided up into different categories. There were prayers that said thank you, Prayers that said, I'm sorry. Prayers that said, please. And prayers that said, wow. So Sid had these beads. They went around their finger and hung down. And Sid thought, this is, this is a really good place to practice with these prayer beads and, and try a prayer on my own. I did it with the class, but now I'm going to try it on my own. Sid held the thank you bead and thought, what am I thankful for? A, a smile spread across Sid's face as Sid remembered lunch that day. It was a lunch with Sid's family, and not just Sid's parents and siblings were there, but grandparents, cousins, great-grandparents. It was a thankful, wonderful time to be together. Sid moved down to the I'm sorry bead. Hmm, what am I sorry for? sat in silence for a little bit, and realized, I've been late a lot lately. And I was late recently when I was supposed to be somewhere, and people were counting on me. And I think they were worried that I might not be there. And I'm sorry for that. I'm going to make sure that I tell them that I'm sorry. And I know that myself. Sid held the third bead, the please bead that I'm asking for something bead. And remembered in class, they talked about all the different ways you can ask for something. You could ask for something for yourself. You could ask for something for somebody else or for the world. So Sid thought, I'm hoping that my great-grandmother 
doesn't feel pain anymore. Sometimes when you ask, it makes you sad. Sid held on to that for a long time. And then Sid looked up and saw the sun coming through and melting the snow. Watched that mist come off the snow. And Sid said, wow. So prayer can be powerful. Prayer can be calming. I wonder what makes you say thank you. I wonder what makes you say I'm sorry. I wonder what makes you say please. Please for yourself, please for somebody else, or please for the world. And I wonder what makes you say wow. And I wonder if anybody wants to make their own set of prayer beads. Just takes four beads. Thank you for being with me today. It's now time to sing our children and youth downstairs, and I'll come take the Wonder Box back and our song. The reading this morning is from a poem, Transcendental Etude, by Adrienne Rich. Vision begins to happen in such a life as if a woman quietly walked away from the argument and jargon in a room and sitting down in the kitchen began turning in her lap bits of yarn, calico, and velvet scraps, laying them out absently on the scrubbed boards in the lamplight, with small rainbow-colored shells sent in cotton wool from somewhere far away. Such a composition has nothing to do with eternity, the striving for greatness, brilliance, only with the musing of the mind, one with her body, experienced fingers quietly pushing dark against bright, silk against roughness, pulling the tenets of a life together with no mere will to mastery, only care for the many-lived, unending forms in which she finds herself, becoming now the shard of broken glass slicing light in a corner, dangerous to flesh, now the plentiful soft leaf that wrapped round the throbbing finger soothes the wound, and now the stone foundation, rock shelf, further forming underneath everything that grows. Please rise as you're willing or able for the hymn number 123 in the gray hymnal, Spirit of Life, number 123. morning. Thank you for coming. Snow, Patriots game, you're still here. <laughs> Amazed. My topic this morning is Thomas Merton. 
I now know that he was one of the most famous mystics of the 20th century, but about 25 years ago, I'd never heard of him. My father brought him to my attention. He was a man in some ways of contradiction, a young hellion who decided to become a monk, someone immersed in the Christian tradition who was drawn to Zen Buddhism, a man who at age 26 went beyond the walls into a cloistered monastery where silence was the rule, yet came to be known around the world for his spiritual writings. The author of 70 books and many essays and articles, there is a bibliography of works by and about Thomas Merton that runs to about 700 pages came to be known around the world for his clear and incisive voice, a public critic of the nuclear arms race, segregation, and the Vietnam War. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but from time to time, I find myself captivated by a person, by a life. And I dive in, and I try to read as much as I can of what they've written, and read biographies, and critical essays about them. This has happened to me again and again in my life. I don't really know why. I, I try to just enjoy it when the fit comes upon me. And so I've dived into the life of Vir Virginia Woolf, uh, certainly Ralph Waldo Emerson, Ernest Hemingway, Emily Dickinson, and Sexton. Often the, in these lives, there's an element certainly of genius, of giftedness. But there's also usually an element of great suffering or struggle. Thomas Merton has been such a person for me, and when I returned to him this week in order to prepare this sermon, I found that he held the same inexplicable fascination that he has for many years. Now, I know that a cloistered Christian mystic is a little bit of a tough sell for a Unitarian Universalist congregation, okay? I, I get it. We're a big tent, theologically, Lots of beliefs, lots of skepticism and questioning, all good. We have many agnostics, atheists, humanists, Buddhists, Jews. So what can we learn from a man, this man from a completely unchurched background, never went to church as a child, wasn't brought up religious, who chose to become a Catholic and then went a few steps further and committed his life not just to the priesthood but to the monastic life who literally went behind the walls, shut the gate, threw away the key. Someone who chose prayer as the primary occupation of his life. Someone fiercely drawn to a God who meant everything to him. And someone who spent his life trying to get closer to that God, more obedient to that God, more intimate with that God, someone who from the minute he woke up in the morning and got out of bed until the minute he went to bed at night tried to turn his attention to God as he went through the daily chores and routines of his day. It's a hard sell, but I have confidence that we are an intellectually curious bunch, a spiritually curious bunch. And just as we enjoyed the college students from Wellesley who were with us here in November speaking to us about their Hindu tradition, or as we turn to the high holy days of Judaism in the fall, or as we draw wisdom from Buddhism uh, in meditation on Tuesday night here, on Thursday afternoon, I trust we bring that same spirit of curiosity to the life of this very unusual young man and the Christian tradition that he embraced. So the basics, Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk. The Trappists are an order of contemplative monks, Cistercians. They started around 1098. Many, there are many orders, of course, Franciscans, Dominicans, Benedictines, each one with a different founder and a slightly different rule for living, as it's called. Some of these orders, and they're both women and men, are out in the world actively working amongst the poor, for instance. The Trappists are a group that stress the contemplative life. They live primarily in silence, some sign language, special times that they are allowed to speak. 
They go behind the walls, as I've said, and don't go out in the world again. That's the vow of stability. And they live out their days in a fairly simple rhythm of manual work, cooking, cleaning, farming, and prayer. Eight times a day, they go to the chapel and chant the offices, beginning at 3 a.m. with vigils and ending at 7.30 p.m. with Compline. Work and prayer, food and sleep, the essential structure of their days, weeks, months, and years. They choose to exist in community but rarely speak to one another. In Merton's day, they slept on straw pallets and wore heavy wool robes, even in the hot Kentucky summers, suffering cold in the winter when the wood they chopped for their fires wasn't enough to give them adequate heat. A deeply contemplative tradition, the Trappists, individuals who, as I said, choose to live in community because they are trying to center their lives on God, trying to draw closer to God in silence, prayer, song, and work, and they believe that by living in this fashion, it will deepen their ability to draw closer to this mystery that they know and they name as God. They have a vocation, a pull, a call, a draw to this kind of life. Well, if you look at Thomas Merton, born in the southeastern corner of France near the Spanish border, son of a French painter, Owen Merton, and an American Quaker mother, Ruth, from Long Island. His family started out there in the southeastern France, but then moved to Long Island in the World War I because it was dangerous. His mother, when he was six, went off to a hospital. She was ill with cancer and sent him a little note telling him that she was sick and that she would die, and that she would not see him again. And indeed, he never did see his mother again. He spent the ages of six, seven, eight, and nine traveling with his painter father, Bermuda, France, Long Island, England, France, a kind of peripatetic existence, to a boarding school he hated in the center of France, to a boarding school he hated a little bit less in the center of England, his father lying alone in a room in a hospital in London, dying of brain cancer, and then Merton, orphaned at age 16, rambling around Europe as a teenager on his own, raising hell as an undergraduate at Cambridge College, moving on to Columbia University to study literature and raise more hell, drinking with his buddies in the jazz clubs and Greenwich Village bars. He loved jazz, Harlem, and movies. He worked on Columbia's literary magazine. If you look at Thomas Merton, hearty, laughing, lusty, quarrelsome, deep-thinking, skeptical young man in his 20s, I think you'd be hard put to find a less likely candidate for the priesthood, never mind the life of a cloistered monk living behind the walls at the Abbey of Gethsemane in the rural heart of Kentucky. What was it that drew this young man to the Corpus Christi Church there on the Columbia campus on the Upper West Side of New York City to dip his toe in the Catholic religion? What drew him to then want to become baptized, to study and learn about this tradition, to make a visit to the Abbey of Gethsemane there in the hills? Who knows? Why at 26 years old in December of 1942, as the war was heating up around the world, why did he return to Kentucky, walk inside the gates of that monastery, and give up everything that he knew and loved in the big and beautiful world to consecrate his life to God? None of us will ever know, of course. We can only try to get a glimpse, a glimmer of understanding, and we can do it in part by reading words that Thomas Merton wrote himself about his own life. He went into the monastery as a writer, a gifted writer, and his abbot asked him to continue to write. And as I told you, he ended up writing 70 books. He spent five years at the abbey, chanting the offices, working in the fields, steeped in silence. And at the end of those five years, he wrote and published his autobiography. It was called Seven Story Mountain from Dante. It was his attempt to trace the contours of his life. It was his spiritual autobiography, if you will, 
written by a man who was still very young, only 31 years old, but someone who was trying to make sense of his life, trying to make sense of these twists and turns that had led him to where he was at that point in time. Seven Story Mountain was published in 1948 and became a bestseller overnight in these years after the war when people were looking for personal meaning and purpose again in a world where they had seen such terrible destruction and death. The first run of it was supposed to be for 7,000 copies, but before it had even been published, 20,000 copies had been bought. It has never gone out of print in the years since, sold millions of copies, translated into 15 languages, and sold and read all over the world. It stands in that great tradition of spiritual autobiographies like Augustine's Confessions, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, or in the 20th century, people like Anne Frank, Eddie Hillism, Elie Wiesel, and Viktor Frankl. And perhaps you have your own favorites in this genre of spiritual memoir. I would love, I would love you to tell me who, who you read in this, in this type of book. Seven Story Mountain, he's trying to discern the movement of spirit in his life, what he would call the will of God and what you and I perhaps would name with other words. It's the way that we might try to look back over our own lives, musing over memories as they come to us, laying them out as if they were bits of shell or stone on a cloth, as the poem says. Vision begins to happen in such a life, writes the poet Adrian Rich. As if a woman quietly walked away and sitting down in the kitchen began to turn in her lap bits of yarn, calico, and velvet, laying them out on scrubbed boards. Vision begins to happen in such a life. There's a class called Spiritual Autobiography that I've taught over the years in congregations, and maybe you've, you've had it here. If you haven't, and there are enough of you, I'd be happy to teach it. It's really a simple idea. There are a few exercises to get the memories flowing, a few writing assignments, and a longer piece at the end. And all of it you share every week with your compatriots. It's a chance to just look back at your life, reflect on where you've been, where you've come from, the twists and turns, tell your story, and share it with others. It's so simple, and yet there is a power in it that I have experienced again and again as a teacher and also as a student in this class. I took it many years ago with the Reverend Carl Scovel, and I can still remember coming in from the cold of a January night, sort of on a day like this, chill, cold January winter night into the warmth and light of the great parlor room and the second floor of the parish house, the King's Chapel parish house that looks out over Boston Common, sitting there at a great dark round polished wooden table with a circle of other people that I'd never seen before, people in all stages of life, in all sorts and conditions as the Quakers say, wrestling with illness I learned later, addictions, private demons of their own, but drawn there to that room I was young and confused, a young adult in one of those difficult stretches of life, unsure about so many things, career, identity, direction. I don't know what it was about that class that helped me. Was it finding the beginning of a language, a spiritual vocabulary with words like suffering and hope and meaning? Was it finding companions for a journey I hardly even knew that I was on? I don't know. There was nothing magic about it, but little by little, things were starting to make more sense to me, order beginning to come out of the chaos of those years in my life. And I do believe that somehow that spiritual autobiography class really helped me, made a difference. We can look at our lives, of course, in all sorts of ways. We could look at them through the lens of relationships or work or children or money or travel. Spiritual autobiography is just another lens. And of course, we don't define the word spiritual. We leave it up to everyone to figure it out for themselves. And so 
those stories that you hear in that class around the table are all so very different from one another. Trying to write this kind of a thing is not easy, but it's intriguing to see what our minds pick up, what the heart gravitates toward, and what it leaves out, what the soul remembers. Who are the people in your life who've made a difference, that you're grateful for, who hurt you, who harmed those you love? What part did difficulty play in the story? Where were there losses, setbacks, struggles, trouble with relationships or money or substances or health? Was there unexpected joy? Were there gifts and grace that came to you as if from beyond? Were there books that changed you, teachers, mentors? Is there anything you'd do differently if you had to do it again? Are there places that you love? These are only some of the questions that we might ask and try to answer when we begin to reflect and write a spiritual autobiography. Thomas Merton was 31 years old when he wrote that book. It is naive, sometimes bombastic, sometimes pretentious. I love it still, and I commend it to you. He lived for 22 more years inside the monastery, traveling rarely, struggling mightily with his monastic vocation, his deep desire for solitude, and you can read about his suffering and his struggle, as well as the joy and peace he found if you read his other books. In 1968, he received very rare permission from his abbot to travel, and he went to give talks at retreats in Alaska and California, and then to Asia, a dream of his life. He had studied Eastern religions for years, particularly drawn to Zen Buddhism. He wrote a book called Mystics and Zen. And on his trip, he met the Dalai Lama and went to visit one of the great historic stone Buddha statues in the depths of Sri Lanka. And then, after delivering a talk at a conference in Bangkok, in a fluke accident, he was electrocuted by a faulty fan as he stepped from the bath. His body was flown back to the United States by the government for burial in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of Mozart's piano sonatas, the Andante in D, Kerschel 311, was played at his funeral. Merton's is simply one voice among many encouraging us to reflect on our lives, to look for the gifts and for the graces, even those that come to us in the guise of struggle or of pain. Vision begins to happen in such a life, says Adrian Rich. May it be so for us. I'm so grateful to Steve Clark and for, to Deirdre for coming this morning. I'm so grateful for the work that they do and that many of you do and that so many do on behalf of the most vulnerable and especially right now the refugees of the world, this great, great crisis of migration. So let us open our pocketbooks and our hearts and give as generously as we can. The ushers will wait upon you for your gifts.
invite you now into our time of prayer and meditation. We begin with a spoken prayer and then have several minutes of silence, and then you have the invitation and opportunity to light a candle in the back of the room for a joy or a sorrow in your own life. We remember people in our community at the beginning of our prayer time. Today we remember Barbara Dove, who continues with her treatment, chemotherapy, as well as those who have difficulty getting to church when it is icy and snowy outside, those who live alone, and those who are looking for work. Let us enter into prayer. Spirit of life, gracious God, we call you by many names knowing you as mystery that cannot be named and as life at the heart of life itself. We give thanks as we come to this place where we can come and let our souls sink into stillness for a time. In the chill of a January day, our footsteps draw us here. We come aware of the world outside in all its beauty and joy, its suffering, and sorrow. We carry the world with us, and now our attention turning inward. We are nurtured in the stillness and in the silence and in the company of one another. By all the years of devotion and meditation and silence and singing, that have been here in this place before we came. And now for a time we lay down all that we carry. We lay it down, we let it go, and we abide in silence with one another.
Our closing hymn this morning is number 190 in the gray hymnal, Light of Ages, number 190. And now with gratitude for a revelation that is not sealed, for those seeds of spiritual vitality that come to us from who knows where, and strengthened by the warmth of this gathered community, we go forth from this place. May we be a light and a blessing to a world that is beautiful and that is broken, and that needs each one of us so very much. Let us sing together the chalice, Extinguishing Response.